Yeah, all right. You're always in my shadow, aren't you? All right, if you have your copy of Scripture, turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're almost done with chapter 5. We've been working our way steadily through it. We're going to cover the next roughly 10 verses here um, as the continuation from that story, if you remember, uh, that John began telling us at the beginning of the chapter where Jesus goes into this dark place in Jerusalem and he sees this man around a pool, the pool of Bethsaida. And in that um, moment, Jesus goes and asks the guy, he's been there for 28 years, 38 years uh, waiting for a healing and he just never could get it. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the guy starts offering all these reasons of why he can't be healed. And Jesus says, take up your mat and walk, which is a beautiful picture of God's grace because the man did nothing to deserve that healing. I mean, he didn't believe. He didn't have any faith. He didn't even know who Jesus was because later on when they confronted him, the religious leaders confronted him because he was carrying his mat just as Jesus had told him to. Uh, They said, hey, you can't do that on the Sabbath day because they were really focused on their rules. And um, he said, well, the guy who healed me um, told me to take up my mat and walk. And they were like, who told you to take up your mat and walk? Not who healed you, but who told you to take up your mat and walk? And he couldn't remember. He didn't know who the guy was because Jesus had kind of faded into the crowd, which tells us a lot about several things. Number one, Jesus was not about fame and and big crowds and getting a lot of attention. Um, He was there to display the glory of God, and he was doing, like we learned in our passage last week, he's doing what he saw the Father doing. So that all plays into this because as that story develops, Obviously, these religious leaders see this man. They want to find out who it was that told him to carry his mat on the Sabbath day. He finally figures out who it was because Jesus meets him back into the, in the temple. And then he goes back to the Pharisees and says, the man who healed me, his name was Jesus. And so now, all of a sudden, there was this confrontation. And it tells us that they wanted, this was one of the reasons they were persecuting Jesus. And then Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. And that made them even more mad. And it says, this is why they wanted to kill Jesus. And from that point forward, they were trying to plot his death. Again, John is not interested in, um, he's not interested in chronology. And he's not interested in telling you the entire story. He's telling you everything that you need to know. So the fact that it moves from Jesus being persecuted to they wanting to kill Jesus in just a matter of two verses doesn't mean that that necessarily all happened right there. What John is trying to tell us is it's things like this that kept stirring the pot for them. It was those healings that Jesus was kind of, they felt like were shoving in their face. And yet they couldn't deny the fact that these people were being healed. Just a side note here, the other gospels tell us several times that Jesus healed uh, lepers. And that after he healed these lepers, he told them to go to the temple and provide the sacrifice required by the law. Now, in just reading that, you would think, okay, well, Jesus is just following the letter of the law because Moses required that. But you're missing what's phenomenal about that. Because if you go back to Leviticus, you will find that there is this prescribed um, ritual that you would go through if a leper was ever cleansed of their leprosy. And it was very, very detailed. I mean, you take a pigeon and you do this and you take blood and you put it on this fingernail and you put it above the ear on this side and you go through this whole thing. Now here's what's amazing. In all of Jewish history, there's not one example, not one recorded healing of a leper ever. So therefore, that whole section in Leviticus that God gave all of this detail to about how you perform the sacrifice for the healing of a leper had never ever been performed until the first century when all of a sudden... They're standing around, and this guy walks up and says, I was a leper, and I've been healed. And they're like, say what? You, you, were, you were healed of leprosy? Yes. Uh, how are you healed? Uh, Jesus healed me. Now, think about, okay, well, I'm going to go through the, I need to offer the sacrifice. And they're like, oh, we don't even know how to do that. Um, no one's ever had to do that sacrifice. They had to go get Leviticus, you know, and open it up and go, what? No, what foot do we put that on, and where do we put all that? And, and then all of a sudden, a few days later, here comes another leper that's been cleansed. And then the next week, here comes another one. And the whole point was, this was meant so that you would know that God was among you. Because this has never happened before. And all of a sudden, not only did it happen once, it was happening happening continually through the ministry of Jesus. But it's these kinds of things that should have been the testimony to the religious leaders that Jesus was truly who he claimed to be and that God was among them, but instead it infuriated them. Because they didn't want to let go of their control. 
And they didn't want to admit that this guy from Nazareth, nothing good comes from Nazareth, could ever be the king of kings and the Lord. It could be God, the son of God. Are you kidding me? And so the more and more they saw, the matter and matter they became because they refused to believe. Now, if you remember in this past couple of passages, right here in John chapter 5, Jesus said, I'm called to be the judge of the world. And I am judging because the Father has given me this responsibility. And I will speak and the dead will rise. Of course, John gives us evidence of that a little later on with Lazarus. But Jesus goes further in that. Towards the end of that passage, he says, one day... All of the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they will all come forth, and they will be judged. Some will come forth to righteousness and to life, and some will come forth to judgment and death. And he says the only thing that separates those two is their deeds. He says those who have done good deeds to life, those who have done evil deeds to judgment. Now, immediately we go, oh, man, that's a works-based salvation, according to what they did. But here's the thing we have to keep in mind is that John uses evil deeds and good deeds 100% consistently throughout his whole gospel. And every time he uses that, he only means one thing. Good deeds is believing in Jesus as the Son of God. Bad or evil deeds is not believing in Jesus as the Son of God. That's all he's substantiating there. He's not saying, you know, because you helped a little old lady across the street or because you're a pretty good person, that those good deeds stacked up and that's what gave you life. He's saying the only thing good you can do in this life is believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Everything else flows out of that. And the only true evil that can come from your life is denying that Jesus is the Son of God because all of your other deeds are going to come from that. Because if you really believe Jesus is the Son of God, you're going to embrace that and you're going to live differently. And if you don't accept the fact that he's the Son of God, you're going to accept that there's some other God that you should worship and it'll probably be you or something else or some kind of material possession that you have. And that will just be evil upon evil upon evil. Do you see this? So we're talking about believing or not believing, and that's kind of the way he ended last week. So going into this, we are seeing... Uh, verse 30 basically concludes this idea of Jesus being judge, and all of a sudden it transitions him into becoming the defense counsel almost in a courtroom. And what he's going to do is he's going to uh, he's gonna come to the point of bringing forth witnesses, one witness after another. He's going to say, you don't believe that I'm going to call to be judge and you don't believe these things are true? I'm going to call witnesses forth to be the witnesses of the testimony that I've given to be true and right and good. So John uses this theme of, of legal courtroom kind of battle, of bringing witnesses in, from the beginning of his gospel all the way to the very end. And you're going to see that. And he's highlighting something right here. Now before we jump into that, let's think about this. How many of you have ever been around someone who um, was their only witness in their defense? Okay, so in other words, they've been accused of something. And they said, I didn't do it. But the only witness they had was themselves, right? How many of you are parents? Because if you're a parent, you've, you've seen this in your kitchen or your living room or somewhere. Because you said, hey, you did this. And they said, I didn't do that. I would never do that. Somebody else did that. I wouldn't do that because of this, this, and this. They have no other witnesses. They can't call forth anyone. They are their own witness. And we think to ourselves, of course they're going to say that, right? Because they're trying to protect themselves. They're trying to promote their own agenda. So we typically do not believe someone if they are their only witness. And Jesus is going to say as much right here. He's going to say, yeah, I'm saying these things, and if I was my only witness, then I wouldn't believe me either. But I'm not my only witness, and I'm going to show you that. So watch that as this unfolds. Look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, there's a lot right there. Now, number one, I want to draw your eyes to that word here. Look again at what he says. As I hear, I judge. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but you have to remember that Jesus is a Jew, and he's speaking to the Jewish religious leaders. Now, the word hear is a powder keg word in Judaism, okay? Because the word hear in Hebrew is the word shema. Now, shema is the central theme of all the Jewish people. 
Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. They call it the Shema because the first word is Shema, hear. Hear, O Israel. In other words, we're all called to hear God. And in hearing God is when we begin to center our lives around him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, right? And so this is really the mantra of the Jewish people. They believed that if they centered themselves around God, that they would not offend him. If they centered themselves around God, they would not worship the false gods of this world. They would not give themselves over to legalism. They would not stray into selfishness and all these things. So whenever they came together, they believed truly God was the only source of life. And so they would shout to their loudest capacity of their lungs, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And so this became something they would do as families. This became something they did every time they came together at a synagogue. So whenever you hear a Jewish person say Shema, it grabs your attention. And Jesus does that right here. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, where are you hearing this from? I'm hearing it from God. Why? Because I'm centered. I'm centered around his identity. I'm centered around his purpose. I'm centered around his kingdom. And as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I'm not seeking myself in it. I'm not seeking to promote myself. I'm seeking not my will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, Jesus here repeats his dependence on the Father. I think it's interesting that the religious leaders are accusing him of claiming to be equal with God and that every time he responds to them, he responds with, I'm dependent on God. I think this is a beautiful picture of who Jesus was. He wasn't there to steal any glory. He wasn't there to stand in the way and let Father God be in the shadow. He says, yes, he has no problem saying, I'm the Son of God. I'm equal with God. I and the Father are one. But at the same time, whenever he is pushed to try and grab that glory, he goes, no, I'm completely dependent on the Father. I do the will of the Father. I find my identity in the Father. What a beautiful picture of what we are called to do, aren't we? I mean, think about where are we, try, where are we called to find our identity? In Christ. And so whenever we have the opportunity to bring glory to ourselves, what we do is like, I mean, I, I'm just trying to do what I see Christ doing. I'm just trying to model my life after what I've seen Christ doing, what I've learned about him and what I've read about him in Scripture. I'm just trying to grow closer to him. I'm just trying to be more like him. Are we one with Christ? Yes. But that never should be a point of gloating. It should always be a point of humility. And that's exactly what he modeled for us. Paul says in one of his letters that even though Jesus was God, he did not see his equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead made of himself what? A servant. And he became a servant to all. So even though he was equal with God, he literally became a servant to those who even hated him. He became obedient to death, the scripture tells us, even death on a cross. What does that tell us about when we follow after Christ? When we understand and, and grow in our understanding of scripture, you know, it should never bring us to a point where we look at our culture that is falling apart and is riddled with all kinds of controversy, all kinds of evil, that it's fractured. It should never bring us to a point of thinking of ourselves as better than them. What, she, what we should all remember is, except for God's grace, that's exactly who I would be. That's exactly where I am. And, and you know what? If we we're completely honest, we would say, you know what? Honestly, it's still where I am in a lot of days. Maybe every day. I'm still struggling with some of the same things that I struggled with before I ever became a follower of Christ. I know I'm forgiven of those things, but it didn't take away the struggle. So I can't look in judgment over someone else. All I can do is do what Jesus modeled for me. Even though he was equal with the Father and he was one with the Father, he became a servant to all. And so we as followers of Christ, even though Scripture says we are one with Christ, that's what Paul tells us in Ephesians, we are one with Christ, we never let that become a point of gloating. We let that become a point of driving us to service, to serve those around us who still don't believe, who still maybe haven't heard. So this is a powerful example for us. Here in this passage, after reiterating his dependence on the Father, Jesus goes on to state what the Father has him doing. 
So in other words, he sees the Father, he's connected with the Father. This is what he's doing because of that connection. Notice how even the very words that Jesus is using here has changed from where we were last week. Uh, Previous, Jesus has been talking about himself in third person. uh, Son of God, uh, Son of Man. But now, all of a sudden, he begins to talk in first person from this point forward. So in accepting the role that the Father has given him as judge, Jesus, at this point, is welcoming this examination of him. So in other words, he's made this claim and he's made these statements, and they are doubting his statements to be true. So he steps out of the role of judge and now steps into the role of defense counsel and says, all right, let's start calling some witnesses. I want to be examined. I want you to examine me, and I want you to see uh, if what I'm saying is false. And so what he begins to do is lines up these witnesses, and he calls one forward after another and says, here's a witness to the truth of who I am. Here's a witness to the truth of who I am. Here's a witness to the truth of who I am. So he claimed to be just, right? He claims that he's not compromised in that justice with any self-interest at all. This is what verse 30 is telling us, prepping us for what's coming. That's his claim. But is his claim valid? And that's really what the rest of this text, all the way through verse 40, seeks to prove. So let's go on to the next one, verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. It goes back to, if I am my only witness, then there's probably not a lot of validity to that. When I was a kid, I remember um, getting my, I vividly remember this, even though I was probably only about, four, five, six years old, somewhere around in that range, and I had these colors that I had in this old cigar box. Uh, y'all remember those old cigar boxes like made out of, I don't remember the name of it on there, but they were yellow, and, or maybe they were different colors. The one I had was yellow, and we would I'd put all my crayons and stuff in there, and uh, I would get those crayons out, and I knew that I was not supposed to draw on the wall, but somehow in my little mind thought, well, under my bed, the wall back there is nobody sees that so that's okay so I became my own little Michelangelo drawing under there I mean I'm talking like weeks and weeks of just drawing pictures on there and I'm talking about Michelangelo the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle not the artist it looked looked more like the something that came out of the sewer but um, I drew all over underneath that bed well I remember coming home one day and walking into that place and my bed had been moved across to the other side my mom had decided that she was going to rearrange some things and they just left that portrait that I had drawn right there for me to see. And I remember my dad saying, come in here, son. And he looked at that, and he pointed, he said, did you do that? I said, no, sir. <laughs> he said, I'm going to ask you one more time. Did you draw on the wall over here? I said, no, sir, I, didn't, I did not do that. I don't know where that came from. And he said, well, who in the world do you imagine did this? I said, Tippy did it. Tippy was our dog. And I knew in my little mind that Tippy was the only one that could not offer his own defense. <laughs> so I blamed it on the only thing in there that could not offer. And so obviously I was not a, a credible witness, was I? Because I was the only witness I could call forward for myself, and I was not credible in my witness and my testimony. So Jesus is saying here, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Look at 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, underline, if you like to underline in your scripture, the another. There is another. Who is the another that he's talking about there? Well, watch how this is developed. In verse 30, Jesus states the issue. In verse 31, he acknowledges something that's very vital to the development of this argument, and that is what is required by the law of Moses. For anything to be accepted as true, it had to have at least two witnesses right so you see that theme throughout scripture two witnesses because that's what's required by the law of Moses two witnesses because witnesses are what validate truth that's something that's true in scripture from the beginning to the end witnesses validate truth and the old testament is replete with tons of examples of how important this this basis of legality is over and over again if there were not enough witnesses then it was not accepted as true but if you had two witnesses to a truth you could actually bring capital punishment in those instances if you had two legitimate witnesses in essence this was meant the whole reason that they have two witnesses that have to bring to be brought forth for something to be called true, it was to protect the ninth commandment. Now, what is the ninth commandment? 
The ninth commandment is, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? So the whole point is that you should not be lying or tell lies or bear false witness about that. Well, how in the world do you know if someone's making a claim? Well, there has to be two other witnesses that have seen the same thing that this person has, and that's the only thing that could legitimize it. And they have to be legitimate witnesses, and there were actually criteria of what a legitimate witness could be. And it was it's very funny, some of it. Like, but anyway, it, I wouldn't, that's not the point of where we're going today. So Jesus, in essence, what he's doing here, he's seeks to honor the law of Moses by calling forth the witnesses. And he doesn't just call forth two in this passage. He actually calls forth four. He doubles what the law of Moses calls for. So Jesus validates that expectation for witnesses to be brought forth. And then he begins to provide the witnesses he's going to go to in, in an introduction phase. So in verse 33, John the Baptist is introduced. In verse 36, the works of Jesus himself are introduced. Verse 37, the Father is introduced. And in verse 39, the scriptures are introduced. Okay. Now, particularly when you talk about the scriptures, you're talking about the law of Moses. That's, that's specifically where he's going. Now, in verse 32, Jesus mentions that God, who is, I had you underline the another, that's who he's talking about there. He's talking about God the Father. That's the another. So God has been active in everything that Jesus has been doing. And in essence, he is shutting down any doubt that what he's saying could ever be false by starting with that statement before he even calls forth his first witness. It's pretty amazing right here. So look how he continues in verse 33. He begins with John the Baptist. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So look at how that starts again. It almost seems like an awkward sentence unless you have been studying the whole gospel of John. It starts off by saying, you sent to John. You sent what to John? Well, if you began uh, back in chapter 1 and going into chapter 2, you remember that the Pharisees actually sent some scribes and priests down to John to ask him, why is he baptizing? And whose name is he baptizing in? And who are you exactly? And you remember what John said? They were like, well, who are you? And he was like, uh, I'm not the Christ. Well, are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. Um, are you Elijah? Come back. I'm not Elijah. Well, then who are you? We've got to answer these people that sent us. Who are you? And he said, I am just a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. The king is coming. And so John literally answers and makes a proclamation to them as they've already sought him out. Who are you and what are you doing? And he tells them very clearly, I'm, there's nothing about me. I am just here to prepare the way for the one who has been sent by God. And he makes the boldest declaration of Jesus that you really find in all of, all of the gospel of John. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he doesn't say that after the crucifixion. He says that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, before any miracles have been demonstrated at all. John knew who Jesus was, and he made a bold declaration to that. And they actually sent people to John to ask him who he was. John makes that confession to them. That's why they said, why it says in verse 33, Jesus said to them, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that that testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. Keep that in the back of your mind. And you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, this is Jesus reminding them that they were the ones who first went to John and were asking, inquiring about what was going on because there was more than just John's ministry. Uh, there was also that one of the um, Jewish uh, Roman historians uh, made this uh, declaration. His name was Josephus. He was a Jewish 
historian during the Roman period. And he said that there was this strong expectation there in the first century that a Messiah was coming, that the long promise of Messiah was coming. So there was this expectation of a Messiah. There were these stories that surrounded the birth of Jesus that we haven't heard a whole lot up until now. And now all of a sudden you have this ministry of this prophet. Now remember the role of prophets and how revered they are in Judaism with the Hebrew people. I mean, the greatest giants, the heroes of Judaistic faith is Moses, Elijah, Samuel. These are the ones that they tell stories about. These are the ones that they love to talk about and relate to. Well, in their day and time, the closest thing they had to a prophet was John the Baptist. And he kind of fulfilled that role. And so they gravitated to him and very proud of him during that time because during their time period, there was this prophet. Yet what happened is towards the end of his ministry, John began to proclaim some things that they felt a lot very uncomfortable with. Number one, he started baptizing Jewish people. Now, they were like, okay, we understand why you would baptize those dirty, pig-eating Gentiles, but why are you baptizing Jewish people? They don't need to be baptized. We're, we're children of God. And that's when John begins to say, everybody needs to be baptized. Every one of us has, has fallen short of that glory of God. Every one of us has offended him. Every one of us needs to be washed. Every one of us needs to be clean. Every one of us needs to repent. It doesn't matter who you are. And then, of course, when they send those people down, they're like, who are you? Are you Elijah? Come back. Where? And this is where he makes that bolder declaration of, I'm here to prepare the way. Of the, and there is one among you right now whose shoes I'm not even worthy to untie. And, of course, the next time we see John the Baptist and Jesus is coming forward, the next day he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is where John began to decline on popularity with the Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus says that he was a burning and shining lamp. Now, I don't want to make too much of that, but I do find that fascinating. I find it fascinating because he uses both terms. You could say he was a lamp, but he says he was a burning and shining lamp. Now, here's why I think it's significant, and this is just my take on it. Whenever something is burn, uh, a shining, there has to be a burning, right? For something to shine, it has to be, because in their day and time, what is he talking about? He's talking about an oil lamp. That's what they use for um, light at night. So to have the burning, or to have the shining of the lamp, you had to have the burning of the oil coming through it, right? You had the wick that went down into it, and that, that's what allowed the flame to continue. And here's the other thing about it. That oil will eventually run out, right? So eventually that oil runs out, and then there is no light anymore. So it speaks to a temporal nature. Here's the other thing. When do you need a oil lamp? In the first century especially, when do you need an oil lamp? At night. It's the only time you need it is at night. Because when the sun goes down, it's dark, and you have to manufacture your light. They didn't have light bulbs and electricity and all that. So you had to make sure you had enough oil. The oil is going to only last a certain amount of time. And while it was burning, it was shining. But when is the shining not needed anymore? When the light shows up. What does John tell us at the very beginning of his gospel? He says, the darkness has seen not a shining, but a great light. And the darkness did not comprehend it. So John was the light in the darkness as the Son of God began to sun, S-O-N, right? But I'm kind of making an allusion there. It's also like a, the light began to dawn on the darkness and now the lamp isn't needed anymore. So John's ministry was temporary. He was a light that was shining and burning. But now, by the time Jesus is making these declarations, John is already dead. He's already been beheaded, and he's dead. He served his purpose, and now the bright light of Jesus is on the scene. And he speaks of John as this hero, the one who was a witness to exactly what was going to happen and who was coming forward. Now, as you move forward with this, um, John the Baptist, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 7, was introduced to us. He was the first person really introduced to us after in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it tells us, and there was one sent from God. His name was John. Okay? So John was introduced to us, and not only was he introduced to us there, he was introduced to us as a witness he was the first one to really recognize jesus who he was for who he was and that's the picture of that 
Okay? He is the one who came onto the scene. He was the first witness there. And from the get-go, he declared exactly who Jesus was and what he came to do. Now, let me also point out here that in verse 34, Jesus says that the testimony he receives is not from man. And what he means is this. Even though Jesus is using human witnesses, he is not dependent on a consensus of human acknowledgement. So in other words, what he's saying is, even though I'm calling forth and saying, listen, John says this, then the rebuttal could be, oh, well, John says that, but so-and-so over there, he doesn't believe that, and so-and-so, he's not looking for a consensus of human perspective, because we know where that would go really quickly. He's calling forth one who has a special calling on his life, and he notes that they even noted the special calling on his life, and he says, you went to seek out why he was here, and he told you why he was here, and that's why I've called him forth as a witness. In fact, the themes that we find here of light and truth, as well as the idea of witness. Notice the first two are very divine in nature, that light and truth. And that reminds us that the only acknowledgement that matters is that of God. And that's exactly where Jesus is going to go with this. You'll see it develop as we move forward. Let's look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So he goes from human testimony to the divine. And the divine is actually seen, Jesus says, in his own works. Now, the word works there, underline that because we need to define that. When we talk about works in the Gospel of John and really all of the Gospels, it always means the same thing. It does not mean good deeds doesn't mean the works of Jesus are not like when he washed the disciples' feet. The works of Jesus is not when he had compassion on people. The works of Jesus is always meant to understand his miracles. It's when he fed 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. It's when he walked on water. It's when he said to the wind and the waves, hush, and it all became still in an instant. It's when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man in his grave clothes came walking out of that grave. And he said, unbind that man. That's what he's talking about when he talks about the works. Every one of those were a testimony not only to Jesus' power, but listen to me. The Gospels are very, very particular in the actual miracles that they share with us. Do you know why? Because if you go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament predicts that when the Messiah comes on the scene, these are the very things that he will do. He will heal the sick. He will make the lame leap like the deer. He will help the blind to see. He will provide like God provided in the wilderness. And God provided manna from heaven. And he provided bread for them. He provided water. These are all the things that we see Jesus doing in his ministry. So they're very specific about showing that what he saw the Father doing, he is doing. And everything that scripture points to, that's what he's accomplishing. These are the incredible works that are being demonstrated and he calls those works forth as a testimony to who he is the word always refers to miracles now this is a very important note here the point of works is not actually the works themselves in other words i don't mean this in a rude way because you listen to me all the way through and you understand what i'm talking about the point of jesus healing a lame man the point of it was not so a lame man can walk again okay because that lame man ends up dying uh, calling Lazarus from the dead was not because he didn't want that guy to be dead, he wanted him to be alive, because Lazarus died again. The point of the miracles was only one thing, to demonstrate that he was the Son of God, that he had power over all of those things. See, there's even times in Jesus' ministry where he was in this one place, and he was staying in this house, and they found out that the healer was there, and people came from all over bringing their sick and the lame and the disease, and Jesus healed every one of them. The scripture literally says that he stayed up late that night and healed every single one of them until they were all gone. And then the next morning, the scripture says that Jesus got up early because the Spirit was leading him to go and be by himself. And so he goes and he's by himself. Well, while he's out there, 
um, you know, being led by the Spirit, probably having fellowship time with the Father, the disciples see this group of people starting to line up at the door again the next day. And Jesus is nowhere to be found. And so they start going and looking for Jesus, thinking, where in the world has this guy gone? So they go wandering off. They send a search party out. They finally find him. And they're like, Jesus, where have you been? There are people who are lined up at the door. They're waiting to see these miracles. They're waiting to be healed. There's so many sick people and lame people that have come from all over. Now, you know what? If I was about me and myself, or if I was about what you thought of me, then I would be very compelled to go back there and do that. But Jesus looked at his disciples and said, we're not going back there. The Spirit is calling me to go to these other villages so I can proclaim the gospel, the good news to those villages as well. You know, if it was all about building our kingdom here, Jesus would have built a big old church right there, and he would just have his healing ministry and just let people come from all over, and he could have just done his ministry from there. But he didn't come to heal all of the sick in the way of the physical healing. He came to heal the spiritual. The physical healings were just to show that he had power over disease, power over sickness, power over death. And he intended to conquer a greater disease, a greater death, and that's the spiritual one. And so we see that demonstrated over and over again. Jesus was okay with leaving sick people behind to go and proclaim truth to another village. Why? Because he knew if he just spent his whole time healing sick people, he's never ending in that because people are just going to get sick again. Why? Because we haven't taken care of what's causing the sickness, which is sin. He came to deal with the sin problem. Look how it continues in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So the third witness that Jesus calls forth is his father here. Now John, even though this is the third witness, he also, or Jesus here, John sharing the story, Jesus gives us three reasons why this witness is not going to be accepted. His testimony is not going to be accepted. And the three reasons are that his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you don't have his word abiding in you. There's are three reasons why you're not going to accept the testimony of the Father. So let's think about those three reasons for a moment. Why, what, why did those three things make this a difficult witness for the religious leaders? Because his word, right here, you haven't heard him, right? There's that word again here, Shema. John tells us in the very beginning, who is Jesus? Jesus is the word, and if we listen and hear the word we can believe and be saved okay so here he says you haven't heard him but the word was literally right in front of them the word had become flesh so they're not saying literally you can't hear because you know obviously we can hear but he was not talking about a physical hearing he was talking about a spiritual hearing now if you go back to this um, there is some legitimacy historically to these claims as well. So you have not heard God. Now, as far as we know, they've never, no one's ever heard God in a large format except at Mount Sinai when he delivered the Ten Commandments. And they got so scared to death of hearing it, they said, Moses, don't ever let him talk to us again. Um, let him talk to you and you just tell us what he said because that is too intimidating for us. Okay? And so from that point on, that's the way he dealt with Israel. He never spoke to them as a group again. Now, there is some discrepancy. What about at Jesus' baptism? Because it says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But there's nothing in the gospel there that tells us that everyone there heard that we know that those who were close there heard it we know the disciples heard it but we don't know anything there that everyone who was standing around on the bank side that day actually heard that so we don't know that anyone heard God's voice there or the, especially the religious leaders so the other part of that is the shape well obviously if you go to the Ten Commandments uh to worship any kind of idol that you've created to represent God would be a graven image. And he said, I don't want you to create any graven images to represent me because I'm bigger than anything you can create and I'm smaller than anything you can create. And nothing you can create can absolutely identify who I am. I am a spirit and I am bigger than life and I am small enough to meet your smallest needs. Okay? So when we think about you have never seen his image and you've never heard his voice, there is some legitimacy to that uh, in their history. But there's also legitimacy to it in Jesus coming in because you, there is the word in front of you and you won't hear him. Jesus said literally 
um, if you've seen me, you've seen who? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so when Jesus says, you have never seen him, doesn't mean necessarily, I think he's making a play on words. Yes, you've never seen him because no one's seen the Father. No one can see the glory of God and live. But what he's saying is you refuse to see him. He's standing right in front of you. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the word. You refuse to hear me. Do you see this? And then the word does not abide in you. In other words, if you don't believe, going back to what we studied last week, non-belief is the same thing as judgment. So don't miss the fact here that Jesus is turning a defense now into a charge. In essence, Jesus is arguing that the Father's testimony was not going to influence them because they were not going to let that testimony influence them. And this was going to hinder them in so many ways. In fact, they were going to be unable to hear or see like the patriarchs did. Go back for a moment. Abraham heard and saw. Now, he didn't see an image of God, but he saw the fire pot coming between the separated pieces of animals, and he knew that that was God coming forth. Moses saw the burning bush, and he knew there was something unique about it, and he heard a voice speak to him through that. When we think about the patriarchs of Israel, they heard and they saw, and yet the religious leaders of their day and time could not hear and could not see. Look how this continues in verse 39 and 40. And these are the last two verses we're going to look at for today. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So that's where it comes down to the point, right? You refuse to come to me. You refuse to hear. You refuse to see. You refuse to believe. Here's the fourth and last witness that Jesus calls forth, and that is the scriptures. Now think about this for a moment. The scriptures is the very foundation of everything the religious leaders believe. The problem is they study and study and study, and they practice and practice and practice, and they so have elevated the Torah to a point that the Torah has become a deity of its own. They have centered their whole life around what the Torah says, what the Torah prescribes. They have created more laws outside of Torah to make sure that they honor Torah even beyond what Torah demands of them. They have centered their life around literally the word of God. But here's the thing. Jesus was actually the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus made the proclamation that the prophets and the writings of Moses were all meant to point to him as the Messiah. But don't miss the warning here. Listen to this. How often are we guilty of doing the same exact thing? How often are we guilty of conceding our whole Christian faith to just whether we know scripture or not. How many of us consider our goodness by, well, I went to Bible study. I'm involved in a small group. I go every Sunday and I listen. I'm reading the word of God. I'm memorizing. I'm hiding it in my heart. Here's the danger. You get to the point where you elevate scripture to a deity in and of itself. Jesus was warning them to say, Scripture is good because it reveals the character of God and it re reveals who He is and it is the very words of God. But the whole point of Scripture was to point you back to Him. The whole point of Scripture was not to show you that you could find righteousness in Scripture, that you could find goodness in Scripture, that you could find your meaning and purpose in Scripture. It was to show you that aside from God, you'll never find any of those things. It was to show us how sinful we are. How deep our depravity had drug us to the depths of darkness. How we would never, ever be able to reach the height that was demanded by the glory and righteousness of God to ever have a relationship with Him again. The scriptures were meant to show us that God was going to fulfill the promise that happened in the garden. That you know what, you're never going to be able to handle this on your own. I'm going to send one who will come from the seed of the woman and he will crush the serpent and I will take care of this sin problem once and for all. But what happened was they began to center their life around Scripture and they denied the very power that the Scripture was trying to point them to. The literal word made flesh was in front of them and all they could do was hold on to their word. Now these are people who love and respected the word of God. 
Okay? These are the same people where the scribes, whenever they would pen the Old Testament, they would make copies of it. They would write every single word slowly to make sure that every letter was formed perfectly. If they made a mistake, they tore up the entire scroll and started over. Whenever they came to the word Yahweh in the scripture, and they were writing it, they're making copies of it, they would come to the word Yahweh, they would stop. They would pray, they would leave, disrobe, wash themselves, come back, write the next letter of God's word, pray, leave, disrobe, wash themselves, put on another robe, clean one, write the next letter of God's word, God's name, yod Hey, vah Hey. They would do that four times because they had such a respect for God's holy name. These people treated scripture with the utmost respect. But what happened was they fractured the scripture away from the one who was the author of scripture. And let me tell you something. It's easy for us to do today. And here's, here's the way we see it. We love going and learning things. We love knowing things about scripture. We love digging deep. But when we look at our lives, the power of God is missing. We don't see anything powerful that can't be explained from a human perspective. Oh yeah, we're nice to people, we're kind. But we don't see what comes from that powerful relationship with God. I'll tell you a story about a friend of mine. She uh, actually comes to my uh, small group. She's an older lady. She's probably in her uh, mid to late 60s. And if you met her, she's a... uh, she is a very different person, uh, but she is the sweetest lady you ever meet. And here's the thing, and I, I talked to her about this. Whenever you hear her start talking about a story, you will be amazed because whenever she starts talking, she, God just comes into the story. And here's what I mean. She will tell you, I got up the other morning, I was driving to Walmart, and all of a sudden I just passed the Walmart that was by my house. I just missed that turn. And I was like, Father God, why did I miss that turn? Uh, there's not another Walmart for seven miles. I guess I'll just go to that one. And she finds herself there, and she walks in and she's buying all her stuff and she's like father god i don't know why i'm in here and then she speaks to that woman and 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 the woman's like rude to her she's like father god why did you have me go speak to that woman she's full of evil and i mean she's just telling you stories but she never dismisses the fact that she's having a conversation with god throughout her entire day and she will tell you stories like this and i kid you not she told this one she said and actually it was the walmart thing she said i passed that walmart i just knew i prompted my spirit i was supposed to go to the next one that was the whole way i was like father god i got so many things to do today this is 14 miles out of the way why are you taking me to this walmart and she walks into that walmart and she has this interaction and and she walks up and she says she got to the cash register and she saw that lady and she could see she said she could just see the hurt in her life and she said how are you and she said i'm okay and she said something just prompted my spirit oh father god i can't say that and he said say it he said did your husband leave you and she said the lady looked at her and said how did you know that and she said, my, my Lord have sent me here to encourage you today. And she said, the lady just began weeping. She said, he actually brought me seven miles out of the way to tell you this. <laughs> and this is, I'm telling you, this lady has story after story after story like this. And I told her not too long ago, I said, you know what? I'm just going to tell you, as a pastor of a church, I long to have a relationship with God like you have. I, I want to feel that kind of intimacy where I bring God into my daily routine. That he's not somebody that I pray to when I'm around a small group or when I come to a place like this. But literally, I have a relationship with him all day. Because that is what this is pointing us to. It's not pointing us back to itself. It's pointing us to the fact that God paid such a price to redeem you so that you could not go memorize scripture so that you could have a relationship with him. Now, I am not discounting scripture. Y'all know the kind of church that we are going verse by verse. We have a high regard for scripture. But the reason I'm emphasizing that is because of the kind of church that we are. I don't want you to ever think that that's good enough. It's never good enough to just know the scripture. The scripture points us to something greater. I don't want to ever be on the receiving end of what Jesus says right here. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, that wasn't just a problem in Jesus' day. John sees this as a problem that the whole world faces. And once the story of Jesus has been told, what happens is the jury is out, and the hearers 
are the ones that are on trial, not Jesus. God has given evidence in Jesus' favor. We see it in Scripture. We see it in the testimony of John the Baptist and other men. We see it in the miracles that Jesus performed. How in the world could a madman do the things that he did? That's what left the, the Pharisees with not a leg to stand on. They knew God was the author of life. How could this guy bring back the dead unless God was working through him? It blew their minds, but they still ignored what was right in front of them. The greatest evidence is the resurrection. And the resurrection means that life was never meant to be found at its fullest here. The fullest life is going to be found beyond here. He's come so that we may have life and life to its fullest. We tend to interpret that understanding as all right here. That's not what it means. We have life now, but to the fullest is when we will experience it in eternity. When we are separated away from all the sin and temptation that this world keeps dragging us down and robbing us of our joy and our peace that Christ paid such a sacrifice, such a price for us to have. The question is this. What will we do with Jesus? See, when the truly just judgment comes, are we going to be those who are weighed by the court and found righteous in Christ with eternal life? Or are we going to be the ones who are found wanting? Because we elevated elements of religiosity above a relationship with God. Listen, don't hear condemnation in my voice today. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm just here to point you to what I believe the scriptures are pointing us to so that we can all, myself included, go back and reflect, am I living the fullest life that I can have in Christ? Or have I settled for mediocrity? Have I settled for something that's just knowing about him but not knowing him? That's what we all have to reflect on. Let's pray together. God, May you receive the honor and glory that's due to you through the teaching of your word. May it call all of us to reflect heavily upon our life, our heart, our deeds. Lord, do we truly believe, and does that belief lead us not only to an understanding of you, but to a life lived out in relationship with you? Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, that you would make effective your word in the hearts of those who you have called forth. Lord, that you would bring life to those who are dead, that you would resurrect their souls, and that you would begin the work of eternity in our hearts right now. Lord, I pray for a sleeping church, that we would gravitate to the power of that relationship with you, that that's when we begin to know what you have for us, and we begin to see things we can't see on our own, and we begin to experience things that you cannot explain from a human perspective. Lord, we want to experience all that you paid such a price for us to have. Lord, we don't want to settle for the crumbs on the floor like we were singing earlier. We want to have the feast that comes from above. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and may he give you his peace. Thank you. Blessings as you go in his name.